2: Where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You know her name and her voice. Anne Garrels was a longtime foreign correspondent for NPR. She's well known for her coverage of the Iraq War, which she wrote about in her book Naked in Baghdad. Anne Garrels lives in Connecticut, and this week she joins a chamber ensemble in Norfolk and Hartford for performances of Between War and Here. The show is a collaboration between journalists and musicians. It combines music, poetry, and the personal experiences of covering conflicts from Anne and another NPR correspondent, Neil Conan. Anne Garrels, welcome to Where We Live.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Also with us to talk about Between War and Here is the founder of Ensemble Galilei. Carolyn Surick, is a poet and she also plays the viola da gamba. She's joining us from a studio in Baltimore. Carolyn, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having us. So I wanted to start
2: with you, uh, Carolyn. Uh, you were the one behind uh, this show. And it really came out of the poetry that you wrote after uh, traveling and visiting uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. So uh, tell us first how you ended up there, you know, meeting with uh, wounded uh, veterans and, and talking with them.
1: Well, it was a really interesting uh, path to that moment. I wanted to take Ensemble Galilei to Walter Reed at Christmas time, but I thought, well, I'll go check it out myself. It was a lot of phone calls, and finally I got to the chaplain who suggested I talk to Peter Anderson at Malone House, which was a, it's kind of like a, a really nice hotel, but everyone there has been blown up. It was on the grounds at Walter Reed or had visible or invisible injuries. And so I went there one day by myself, sat in the corner, pulled out my viola de gamba, (laughs) <laughs> Which is an odd enough idea from the very beginning, and started to play, and uh, I was, it was a little awkward, I could say, from for a little bit of time, and then this wonderful young soldier rolled up in his wheelchair, and we started to chat, and he was, I said, well, you know, would you tell me about what happened? And he was very explicit, told me exactly what had happened to him. And then I gave him a Viola to Gamble lesson, and and we were laughing and talking. He turned to go to lunch and looked back at me and said, ma'am, this is a once in a lifetime experience. Mm. And I was, it, it, I live about an hour from Walter Reed, when traffic's not too bad. And I thought, you know, what a an extraordinary thing. It took so little of my time and energy And meant so much to him. So I went to the parking lot and I called my friends from the car, Sue Richards, who plays Celtic harp, and Ginger Hildebrand, who plays guitar and fiddle. And I was like, we're in. So the three of us ended up spending seven years of Fridays working with wounded warriors and their families. And it was an incredible experience. Really, really incredible.
2: So the music uh, moved this particular veteran. You went back uh, with uh, members and friends. Uh, But were you surprised that a veteran
1: would react to the viola da gamba uh, in that way? It was completely uh, a surprise. I mean, I've played in a lot of different places in my, you know, 40-some years of playing the viola da gamba. And I just didn't understand sort of the power of music. And when the viola de gamba and the harp and the guitar were together, it was this incredibly beautiful sound. Not, I mean, it, we ended up creating a CD for the guys and gals and giving it away because it really helped them calm down. And as far as I could tell, there was nothing super magical about the repertoire or the instrumentation, but there was something about it that just, it was as if it gave the wounded warriors and their families a beautiful place to be for a while and a calm place to be. And so it ended up being, like, super effective. And, and people, because we were there every week, every week, people would come and sit and talk, and they'd come and play music with us. And we were like the wallpaper. So we just became part of the community. And because these guys and gals were soldiers, They were really clear about that their job was to heal, and they were happy to share with us their experiences.
2: You said that they were there to heal. This music resonated with them. It helped them do that?
1: In an extraordinary way, yes, exactly.
3: Carolyn is extraordinary in that she is, I don't know many musicians who are proud of the fact that they put people to sleep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. this one soldier walked up to us and he was a a traumatic brain injury guy. And he was like, I slept for four hours last night. I mean, it was like this major accomplishment because he had our CD on repeat. And uh, yes, we, we are very proud of the fact that people get very, now, this is trio Galilee, not ensemble Galilee. <laughs> so the music that we're playing on tour is very different. But um, but yes, for the trio, that was our claim to fame. We were able to put more people to sleep in America than anyone else.
2: You mentioned traumatic brain injuries, also post-traumatic stress. These were the signature uh, injuries uh, from uh, this Iraq war at that time. Um, and so that's something that Walter Reed even embraced, that this, this idea of having you and your friends there helping uh, these veterans heal but also um, helping their family members that are there with them.
1: Right, exactly. Well, and in fact, then when Walter Reed moved over to Bethesda, um, the behavioral health side went down to Fort Belvoir, and we got a call from Fort Belvoir saying, you know, could we come down there and work down there with Wounded Warriors too? So, yes.
2: Uh, we keep mentioning uh, the instrument. Am I even saying it right? Viola da gamba, viola da de gamba? <laughs> Describe that instrument for us.
1: Well, it is. It, it went out, first thing is, it went out of style in 1750. So <laughs> if you haven't had one in your living room, it's okay. Um, it's an instrument that went out of style because of its particular resonant quality and because uh, orchestras came into style. But imagine a cello, but then put seven strings on it. And then uh, put frets on it like a guitar has frets, but these are frets are movable. And then take off the end pin at the end. So then you just sort of have to cradle it between your legs. And instead of holding the bow the way it's held, and with modern violins, you put your hand upside down and hold the bow. So it's a it's a very very different beast, um, and sort of is. I think it has the quality or the capacity to be very much like the stringed version of the human voice. Annie, would you think that?
3: Yes, but it also is incredibly resonant.
1: Yeah.
3: And, you know, as Carolyn said, I mean, this would not seem like an instrument that would attract young wounded vets. But Carolyn is so engaging, and the audience will see that and uh, that it worked. I mean, she was a hit. <laughs> yeah. And then she's a wonderful writer and wrote a series of poems and postcards about the experience and um, sent them to me and asked me if I would be one of the narrators. And, I mean, it was a no-brainer. Mm. And. Tremendously exciting for me to work with such extraordinary musicians and watch the process of marrying narration and music together, which the ensemble had done in the past, uh, but it was, a, it was totally new for me. Mm.
2: Uh, Anne, I know you like to be called Annie, uh, when you were covering all of these different conflicts in your career, even when you look back at what you saw in those eight years covering the Iraq War, how did this music um, resonate with you and what did you recall from the things that you've seen, um, why you felt the need to be part of this project?
3: Well, I had retired and I had certainly stayed in Iraq too long. I was pretty nutty by the time I came home after eight years um, in many ways I was writing about the arrogance and ignorance of our administration and uh, the endeavor in Iraq and Afghanistan and I was pretty arrogant and ignorant about myself uh, and so this was by complete fluke when Carolyn approached me this was a healing process for me too uh, and I mean the the program is not political, uh, but it is a story of healing, of pain, of suffering. It's funny at moments, unbelievably uh, and and it reminds people of the cost of war, which we don't talk about. you know there is no draft in this country and a lot of people you know just have no interest or, uh, or attachment uh, to the military or the war, and we don't read, read or hear about it much at the moment. I mean, Washington is sucking up all the oxygen, and so at many levels it, it forgive the phrase, resonated mm-hmm. uh, um, with me.
2: You're hearing Annie Garrels, a longtime NPR foreign correspondent uh, here on Where We Live, as we learn more about this performance. Uh, two performances in Connecticut this week in Norfolk and Hartford. Uh, it's called Between War and Here. And uh, Annie Garrels collaborated as well as uh, NPR correspondent Neil Conan with my other guest uh, here today, uh, Carolyn Surick, who is the founder of Ensemble Galilei uh, She's also a poet. And, and Carolyn, I wanted to ask you, um, as you're Playing music for these uh, veterans at Walter Reed, uh, you and two of your uh, friends, uh, and you're also putting your experiences on paper as a poet. Uh, what did you What did you write about? What were the things that 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 you wanted to remember?
1: Well, the um, because of the privacy issues at Walter Reed. I wanted to be really careful not to identify anyone, but I really, really, really wanted people in America to see the kind of resilient, funny, um, and courageous men and women that we met. And so I decided that the best way to do that was to have every poem be like a postcard. Like if I was going to write to someone and tell them about this person I met today, then I would just like make that description, but without having it be attached to that person. Like I went out of my way not to name names, not to hair colors, no descriptors, which made it really, really interesting because then when we started giving the book away, other wounded warriors would come up to me years, years later and say, I knew that guy. Well, they probably didn't because that guy probably left five years ago but they knew the other guy who had both of his legs blown off and was really funny. And so it sort of became this this uh
3: every man, <clears throat>
1: every man exactly, or woman. And, and they they do have a wicked sense of humor I and mean, there's this guy in a wheelchair and both of his legs was were blown off and he was wearing a t-shirt and it showed an explosion. And above it, it said Afghanistan. And below it, it said, I had a blast. (laughs) I mean, you're just like, oh, my gosh. There was another guy who had lost a leg, and he had a T-shirt that said, Wounded Warrior, Some Assembly Required. I mean, they just are incredibly irreverent and have this dark sense of humor and and most of the time you know people who don't spend time with wounded warriors when they see them on the street they feel a lot of things sometimes they might feel pity or you know but really these guys because they're all in the process of healing together they're not shy about it you know they wear their prosthetic legs with honor they they Are happy to tell you about exactly where they are in their recovery. Um, I mean one time a trip came back from the beach and this one of those you know like a hotel cart where you bring your luggage in well this one was full of prosthetic legs. Mm. It was like all the legs were on one cart and it was like uh, and there at Walter Reed there's nothing unusual about that you know this is just the way they rock.
2: This book of poetry is also titled uh, Between War and Here. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, writing down uh, some of these experiences, but you also lost somebody um, I, did. I did. Can you talk <clears throat> a little bit about that?
1: Well, it, it was a dear, dear friend of mine. And, and the reason we're doing this show and touring this show is because, um, you know, you have people in your life and you fall out of touch for a few years and then you reach to reach out. And um, so I had this friend who was a special operations guy, and I went to reach out to him, and I couldn't find him. And then I looked, and he had been killed in a firefight in Afghanistan. And I wanted to do something to honor him. And I, uh, at first, I thought, well, I'll do a concert every year on the day that he was killed. And then I was like, no, I can do better. And so I called up Neil. I'm like, Neil, let's do this show. And he, he was like, OK. And the Special Operations Warrior Foundation is incredibly near and dear to my heart. And uh, so we, when we sell CDs and books at the concerts, we donate all of the money to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation.
3: And explain, Carolyn, what they do because I, I think it's just so stunning.
1: It is, it's amazing. I, I didn't, I mean, we started donating to them years ago and before I really knew what they did and then. So what they do is if a special operations person, man or woman, is killed, Either in training or in battle, they find their children and they track them. Mm -hmm. So like if their child is two years old, they know where they move to, they know what school they're in. When they graduate from college, they go to that person and they say, We've got you Mm -hmm. whether they want to go to cosmetology school or Harvard. And and they just are there for these kids. And one of the things that you realize when you spend a lot of time at Walter Reed is, is that when special operations guys are killed, um, they are a lot of times, they're really bigger than life people, and the, the center falls out of that family, and, and their wives can take it really, really hard, and sometimes these kids are little, and they, don't really, they won't remember their parent. When, they, when they're going to college. And this organization sort of steps in and says, we're here, we support you, and we support you. We know who your, your dad was, and we're here for you. And that is just incredibly powerful. Your music is very moving.
2: I wanted to uh, play some of it for our listeners. Uh, This is uh, The Flowers of the Forest. It's from a live recording of a performance of Between War and Here. Uh, This was in Berkeley, California. Carolyn Surick, can you tell us about that song, The Flowers of the Forest? There's a story behind that that particular tune.
1: Indeed there is, and it's fascinating because the tune is a Scottish tune, and it was written hundreds of years ago after the Battle of Flodden, or Culloden, which was in 1513 on September 9th, and in that battle, 10,000 Scottish soldiers were killed, and when we first and i didn't know this when when this piece came to us ryan McCassin brought it and he's one of, he's this amazing scottish fiddler and he said how about this and it was so perfect for this project and when i found out that it had this story about the deaths of these soldiers it was just an amazing moment mm.
2: Uh, Annie Garrels, when you hear that song, uh, you can't help but not be moved.
3: Oh, and you just heard the beginning yeah. of it. It really lets rip later on. Um, and the musicians um, are simply extraordinary. I just can't tell you know, people listening what a powerful mixture the narration and the music is and how talented the ensemble is. Uh, it was and watching them as I said work together uh, and to marry the music to come up with the music and one of the musicians is a fantastic composer and a couple of his pieces are in the um, in the performance and it's and the music is allowed to be and the narration is allowed to be they don't fight it's it's quite extraordinary
2: Caroline, can you uh, walk us through the process so you have uh you have neil Conan again uh and Annie Garrels uh narrating uh they also have very personal experiences from covering different conflicts uh you're weaving their um stories as well as their voices into what you observed and your uh and your friends at walter reed can
1: you t- can you walk us through just how this all comes together it's a fascinating process Neil who has been working with us on multidisciplinary projects for a very long time. This is our fifth project with Neil. Um, It calls it the Goosebump Test. And what we do is we have Annie or Neil read, and they sort of decide how to group the stories. And so they read, and when they get to the end of that group of stories, we start to play something. And we play a tune, and... And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. One time we were putting together a show with National Geographic, and I had a piece that was just perfect. I knew it in my heart, and we tried it, and it was terrible. I mean, we... It's like you never actually know what piece of music or what genre or what country or what style is going to be the perfect piece of music for those last words that the audience heard. And so when you find it, when we find it, when we get to that moment, it's like we all have goosebumps. We don't talk about it. We don't have to, like, think about it, analyze it. It's just that is the piece of music. And sometimes... Really, it's a piece that's sort of contraindicated. I mean, you would like never choose that piece of music in your rational mind to go with that story. But when you hear it, it's like, oh, that's it. Uh, I read initially you
2: thought uh, that when you were then uh, moving on to recording uh, uh, a CD, The Flowers of the Forest, initially you thought that this music was all going to sound dark uh, because again, (laughs) it's based on stories of of wounded warriors, uh, but that wasn't what
1: you ended up uh, hearing, just the dark. Uh, Tell us about that. In 29 years of making music with Ensemble Galway, I have never been more surprised. Literally. I mean, we and we we titled the CD was going to be called Georgia Avenue in honor of the old Walter Reed. and but we had recorded it over a period of four months instead of doing it all at one time. And so in my head, I didn't have the totality of the music. And when I started the editing process and I realized what we had laid down and what was in this show, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much more light. And life and joy in the CD than I would have ever ever imagined when this when this music was attached to this project because one of the reasons is when you're at Walter Reed playing um, you try, you end up playing what you feel in the room and it's never light I mean it's almost always starts from a sort of place of very soulful darkness and. And so I imagined that the CD would be more reflective of what we'd actually played at Walter Reed, and it wasn't. It was reflective of the words in the book, which have a tremendous amount of hope in them, and joy, and sort of um, uh, a way of, of being that's not focused on darkness, that's really just focused on humanity and moving forward. It was fascinating. Yeah. Annie Garrels, uh, you uh, were with this
2: project when I believe it opened in Los Angeles uh, in September of 2018. What was the response when people um, – what did you hear from people?
3: Well, uh, a lot of people said, oh, my God, more people have got to hear this. They, I mean, this is just amazing I mean, because it, it is a bit of an odd thing between war and here. It could seem like such a downer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not and And then there were people who in the audience, who were in tears uh, because they had gone through this and And I know for Neil and me, it was cathartic. Neil was taken prisoner in the Gulf War. Uh, we didn't know what had happened to him for five days. we didn't know if he was alive or dead, and it was pretty traumatic, and he had to sort of fight to get his sanity back afterwards, and he talks about that um, in in a way that only Neil can do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, uh, so at many levels, it was, um, again and again with audiences, uh, just, wow, that's not what I thought I was coming <laughs> to hear, but in a good way, I mean, it, because, as Carolyn says, there are, it's searing, it moments wry, on occasion funny, um, but it's not sappy. You're hearing Ann Garrels, a
2: longtime foreign correspondent for NPR, who'll be performing with Ensemble Galilei. The show is called Between War and Here. After the break, we'll continue our conversation and hear music from the special performance. I'm Lucy Nalpatanchel, and this is Where We Live. This is where we live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Afghanistan and Iraq wars are far from our lives in the U.S. News about them makes it into the headlines occasionally, but for the most part, it really is out of sight, out of mind. But war has long-lasting effects on service members, on their families, on the people on the ground caught in the middle, and on journalists covering what's happening. A special collaboration between musicians from chamber group Ensemble Galilei and longtime correspondents will be on stage this week in Norfolk and in Hartford. It's called Between War and Here. I had the chance to speak with the founder of Ensemble Galilei, Carolyn Surrick, to learn more about the project that was inspired by her visits to Walter Reed Medical Center. Between War and Here also includes narration from two longtime foreign correspondents for NPR, Neil Conan and Anne Gerrels. Gerald's joined me in studio to talk about why she got involved. I mentioned earlier you covered the Iraq war for eight years. So um, as someone is sitting there hearing you narrate and hearing you detail some of your experiences, what did you decide to focus on? Was it what you saw on Fallujah?
3: Yes. I mean, I knew Neil was going to talk about sort of the effects of war on him. Uh, and so... I chose a moment in time uh, in the, you know, f- when I was embedded. I mean, I'm famous for having been unembedded in Baghdad during the bombing. But frankly, it was you know far more difficult and dangerous um, once the troops came in on the ground. Uh, and the Battle of Fallujah was one of the biggest battles of the, of the war and I was embedded with a group, a young platoon of Marines, and I describe what it was like. They didn't want me with them, I assure you. Uh, I mean, they were scared to death. They'd never been in combat. They had just been brought in uh, for that battle uh, from the Far East. They didn't know, I don't think they knew where Iraq was, frankly. And... Um, We ended up bonding, and uh, one of the soldiers, one of the young uh, Marines uh, was killed, who I had become particularly close to. And I, I had interviewed him at length the night before we went in, and I ended up sending his mother the raw tapes. I mean, as I say in, in the performance, I mean, I deal in words, but words failed me. But he had been so eloquent about how wonderful his mother was. She was a single parent, and I couldn't have given her a better gift. I just wish I could have given her a son back.
2: Carolyn Surek, uh, what have you heard from audience members uh, who have seen Between the uh, War and Here? And, you know, have you felt like the message from your poetry to this show, to the music uh, is, is getting through to Americans who, as uh, Annie Garrels mentioned earlier, often forget that these conflicts have uh, consequences for many years, even if they're not in the headlines?
1: You know, that is, it's an incredible thing. It's a wonderful thing because uh, the the stories are really sort of without sentimentality. And so, um, and the way that Neil and Annie read them is just incredibly beautiful. And so for people who are not in the military and do not know military families, it's incredibly meaningful. But then you have these people who are in the military or retired, or they have you know they are military families, and you hear them in the back, and they 're like, "Oh yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean there was a lot there were a lot of oh yeah, oh my gosh and it 's just like <laughs> oh that 's the way oh yeah and um, and that is incredibly uh, fulfilling when i when i 'm sitting there and I hear these guys you know, and and then I had this incredible phone call from a woman um, who came to the performance in Salt Lake with a guy who was clearly a veteran. And and uh, after the performances, one of the things that happens is that people don't leave. They just stand around and they want to talk or they just want to be there. And she called me and she said that her friend had hesitated to come mm-hmm. because um, he was worried about uh, what it was going to be like.
3: Reopening and- wounds. <clears throat>
1: Well, he was also, he's a very conservative guy. And no offense, but something with Ann Garrels and Neil Conan, he wasn't sure whether he wanted to be there. Um, and he talked about it afterwards every day. And, and she wanted to know if, if there was this one song, like the only song that's in the show that we've never recorded. And, uh, and I was like, oh, sorry, we don't have that yet. But, um, but he just he just couldn't stop talking about what this meant to him. And that, you know, there's nothing in life better than that. Mm. Annie Garrels, earlier you
2: mentioned, uh, after covering the war, you you needed some time to decompress. And maybe you should have done it sooner rather than later. Um, As you're on stage again, narrating, recalling these memories, who are some other people that you remember? You mentioned the anecdote about the Marine who died. He must
3: have known that something was up um and they were doing house to house searches and he made me stay outside mm-hmm. i mean this kid was 19 and he ordered me to stay outside um i'm so sorry and he and he was extraordinary i mean he had we had been together i mean it, it reminded you know all of it reminds me of um you know day to day uh not just fallujah but Um, You know, some boring days when, you know, we would uh, go on patrols and um, some of them, you know, I, you know, I did not support the war and I stayed because I was so appalled at the progress of the war, but I came to know and admire the soldiers on the ground. Maybe not what they were they were being told to do or the o- overarching, okay. but I was very close to the troops and I lived with them for weeks on, sometimes on end, and I I you know this allowed me in a different way to pay tribute to them, mm. and they saved my butt.
1: Mm.
3: You know they I mean in. In Fallujah, the poor Marines really didn't want me with them. They were scared to death. And if they were going to have to have a reporter in their midst watching their every move, you know, if they wanted a network babe. They didn't want some 55-year-old. And they were terrified I wouldn't be able to keep up. And they were terrified they weren't going to be able to keep up. So what were they going to do if I, you know, dragged in the, in the mm-hmm. back um, so, I mean, there was, there was a very complicated dynamic, but we, we had, in the end, you know, we were buddies.
2: Have you kept in touch with some of them who made it back?
3: Yes, and through this, um, through this performance, a bunch of people I knew in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan have gotten back in touch with me.
2: Um, Carolyn Surick, uh, before we go, uh, again, uh, this is a really remarkable project, um, and I wanted you to talk a little bit more about the CD uh, that you have and you're selling in in benefit of yeah. these wounded warriors that you mentioned.
1: Well, can I, can I tell you my story about it? Sure. Because because we, I thought it was going to be called Georgia Avenue, I didn't have a plan B. So I called our producer, Dan Mercurio, and I'm like, Dan, I've named it the wrong thing. And he was like, well, what he speaks to you most deeply, musically. I was like, the flowers of the forest. He said, that's it. So I was out in Montana, and I'm I'm thinking, rethinking cover art, because it was going to be edgy and about, you know, Georgia Avenue, and, and so I'm in a graveyard in Choteau, Montana, and I get some good pictures, but not quite it, and the next day we're having breakfast at this tiny cafe in this tiny town called Bab, Montana. And there's this beautiful special board with like today's burrito on it, at, but a great drawing at the bottom of mountains and, mm-hmm. and sky. And so I asked to uh, to meet the person who'd done it, who was this kid in the kitchen who was the dishwasher. And I said, um, I'm with a group and I was wondering if you would like to do the cover art for our new CD. <laughs> and he looked at me like I'd just fallen from Mars. I was like, and so I explained to him about the CD and about our project and, and said, you know, I'd like to have some mountains and maybe something a little Celtically and some, maybe some headstones because we really are honoring the dead and the wounded. But it needs to have hope. And so we talked about it. And, and I said, I've, I've got $100 in my pocket. I'll give it to you. And then I'll give you 200 more later. And he's like, no, no, don't give me money until it's done. Anyway, the long and the short of it is I left the cafe And 100 miles later realized I had no contact information for him. But he got in touch with me. And then he sent me this incredibly beautiful, beautiful picture that he did. Oh, and when I was asking him, I'm like, do you always work work in chalk? He goes, no, ma'am. I really like pen and ink and watercolor. So Leif Anderberg from Babb, Montana, made this beautiful, beautiful watercolor for us for the cover. And it was just it was so amazing to have had this serendipitous moment of running into this d- young dishwasher in Bab, Montana at the cafe, which in the town, there's only a cafe and a gas station. That's it. In fact, he couldn't send me a picture of it because there was, there's no scanner in Bab, Montana. So he had to send me the original and it was just, I mean, it, it had all of the life and the light that the CD had in it, too. And he'd never heard any of our—I mean, he just had heard what he could find online, but did not know the CD, and it was just perfect, perfect.
2: It's been a a real pleasure to speak with you, Carolyn Surik, who is founder of Ensemble Galilei, also a poet. Um, It's her uh, book of uh, poetry that inspired this performance that's going to be in Norfolk and Hartford this week. And Uh, I
3: just want to point out in Hartford, the tickets are going to be free. So if you go to Infinity Hall, I mean, they'd like you to pre-register, but the tickets are going to be free, and I just urge people.
2: Well, that's good to know. Thank you. Uh, but Carolyn, thank you for joining us today from a studio at WYPR in Baltimore.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure.
2: And you've been hearing Annie Garrels also here today on Where We Live. It's such a pleasure again to meet you and to hear you speak And
3: to be here after so long. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
2: Um, We're going to go out with Of Darkness and Light. It's from a live recording of a performance of Between War and Here, which will be on stage at the Church of Christ Congregational in Norfolk tomorrow and in Hartford at Infinity Hall on Thursday. More information at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. When we come back from the break, we'll switch gears and talk about a local event that focuses on women in maritime careers. I'm Lucy nauta This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. Connecticut's coastline is one of its assets. It also provides thousands of maritime jobs. There's a conference tomorrow in Mystic, Connecticut, which is focusing on women in maritime careers. Are you one of them? You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. To learn more, joining me now by phone, Kathleen Burns, Executive Director of the Connecticut Marine Trades Association, uh, based in Essex, Connecticut. Kathleen, welcome to our show.
0: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me.
2: When we talk about the maritime sector, uh, tell us about uh, the careers that we're talking about.
0: Well, <clears throat> the overall maritime uh, industry covers many different facets. Um, we have the recreational boating industry, which covers marinas, boatyards, boat salesmen, boat dealers, etc. And then it broadens out to the broader maritime, which includes Coast Guard, naval operations, more of the military aspect of it. And then there is also the shipping And and uh, port uh, port industries as well. So it's very, very broad and it touches many, many lives across the state.
2: When we think about uh, commercial fishermen and women, um, is that growing among women that are interested in that that particular
1: job?
0: You know, overall, as more women are being able to touch the water, everything that touches the water um, is is open to women, and it's a very exciting it's a very exciting time for women to be involved in all aspects of boating, whether it's fishing, commercial, uh, uh, military, or uh, you know, my what is near and dear to me, and that's the recreational side.
2: Uh, You mentioned recreational uh, boating industry. So tell us more about uh, your association, the Connecticut Marine Trades Association, um, and its uh, impact in the state.
0: Well, our association has been around since the 50s, and we are made up of about 350 marine related businesses representing uh, boat dealers and brokers, marinas and boatyards finance, insurance companies, all those that that touch the the boating industry. We have about 7,000 employees statewide, mostly uh, employed in small businesses, uh, not only on the shoreline but in our inland lakes and rivers as well. And our association promotes um, uh, environmental concerns, uh, recreational and safe boating aspects, and, of course, advocacy to protect the interests of the boaters and the boating industry, excuse me, overall.
2: Uh, Kathleen, you mentioned the Connecticut Marine Trades Association has been around for 50 years. So uh, tell us what attracted you to this uh, work, um, and, and when did you start to see more women involved in recreational boating?
0: Oh, such a great question, because, I, you know, it is my dream job. I spent... Um, almost 30 years, if you will, on the front line, um, managing marinas in uh, Maryland, and then most recently for the last 16 or 17 years right here on the Mystic River with managing two large facilities uh, right on that beautiful body of water. Um, I had been on the board of directors of this Fine Association um, being its first female chairman, which was something I was very proud of. And when the position opened up about five years ago, it was such a natural fit um, for me to take my front-end knowledge of what it really takes to operate, employ, run a business, uh, advocate for environmental protection, et cetera, and uh, a step into this role. And I am so thrilled that um, I have a, a team of three on staff here, all three of us women. Um, one gal I've worked with for um, almost 20 years now, she came with me from uh, the, the boat yard side. So we're seeing um, uh, more and more uh, women in my type of role uh, heading up Marine Trades Associations across the country, as so many of us are um, have enjoyed wonderful careers in this great industry.
2: Um, so you didn't really actively seek out uh, these women, uh, but they just kind of happened. Why? What? What? What drew them to the the professions?
0: Well, I think in in the my my situation, you know, it's finding that right person, and um, we are a service driven industry, and so I think women are first tapping in from the service side, which would be like restaurants, hotels, et cetera. But secondly, what we're seeing in the in, in the industry is an increase in women entering in the technical fields, and uh, I, I think that is just such a wonderful opportunity as. Nationwide, we see a shortage in um, workforce and technical. Uh, technical. There's so many job openings in the technical side, and it, it is wonderful to see women not fearing those as our STEM programs and our engineering programs and our technical training programs are opening their doors for uh, for anyone, and we're seeing that grow for women, uh, not only statewide but nationwide.
2: On the phone with me, Kathleen Burns, Executive Director of the Connecticut Marine Trades Association uh, based in Essex, Connecticut, um, as we focus on um, the uh, growth of women uh, in the maritime uh, careers. And you mentioned the technical side. So what kind of jobs are we talking about, Kathleen?
0: Well, we're talking about our marine mechanics, uh, electricians, uh, carpentry, uh, painting, um, you know there are, are a few of our members that are employing some of the most talented boat painters, which is a very uh, finesse type of activity to bring in that, the luster and the beauty of, of this fine piece of uh, piece of art. There are construction, engineering, building. Um, it covers really a wide body of trades, and we're also seeing more women following in boat sales. Yacht brokers, they're some of the most highly successful yacht brokers in the state are women. um, And they're identifying with so many more women that are coming into the recreation. And so we're seeing that employee come from so many people entering that recreation.
2: When we talk about uh, these challenges across the industry as a whole, you know, cultivating that next generation of workers who understand uh, these skills that are interested in these specialties so what's being done uh, to attract uh, this, again uh, young people specifically young women and girls
0: excellent question and we're working with a number of layers through the state to enhance um, number one the um, the notoriety of the industry that these jobs are out there um, we have I, we have Spoken at several uh, job fairs and um, school, uh, school age uh, events that they've held, and they've been equally attended by boys and girls, and whether they were the technical schools or our, our, traditional, um, our traditional high schools, we've been speaking uh, around the state. We're working with workforce alliances. Uh, at all levels, not just entry level, but in some of the more um, uh, some of the more technical ends of it, the higher end positions, and transitioning uh, folks from military careers, uh, secondary careers, and bringing them into training and what we 're seeing is this is open not not only to what would be appear to be a typical male role, but much many more women are focusing on these as real career, lifetime, uh, full-paying, full-time positions. And so we're working on multiple levels with the state, Department of Labor, Department of Ed, um, and we're really excited to be rolling out some of these programs really in the next 12 to 15 months.
2: What about uh, diversity? Is it an issue in this state in terms of maritime careers?
0: You know, I've had the opportunity to work in a number of different markets, and I, I've seen, in um, say for instance, the Mid-Atlantic area and uh, South, a far greater diversity of um, of folks in the industry, not only participating in the recreation but working within the industry. I think that we're seeing that grow here a little bit. Um, I think there are other areas of the country that are ahead of us in that in this region. Um, But all that said, on a national level, we're seeing a far greater diversity within the recreation and within the workforce that is really beginning to look like our our country as a whole.
2: Uh, Kathleen, we just have a couple of minutes left. I mentioned you're moderating a panel discussion at Mystic Seaport Museum, I believe, tomorrow. Tell us uh, who's going to be on the panel and what's the focus?
0: Oh, what a wonderful group of women I'll be with. Uh, Shannon McKenzie, who's the director of watercraft programs at the seaport. Dr. Tiffany Smith, who is with the United States Coast Guard. Amy Blumberg, who has been a longtime sailor. She is an owner and captain of the Argea Cruises. Allie Halvidsson, who's the director of Naval and Maritime Consortium. And so each one of those women are touching a different aspect of the maritime industry. And it's truly an honor to be with them. There are some very highly talented and and, uh, really smart gals that have have come from uh, various backgrounds, but the water has touched them, and now they're giving back very much to the maritime industry.
2: And what do you hope will come out of this panel?
0: The diversity of the attendees is really pretty exciting, and there's still spots available for tomorrow's, uh, tomorrow's event. But I want people to understand that the maritime industries offer such great, great diversity, offers such great career paths, but it's not just the old boys club anymore, that they're, uh, this is a great career path for women. And so if these attendees take it back not only for themselves, but for their daughters and their nieces and their granddaughters, I, I think we will have succeeded, and it's mm. something that I know all of us on this panel are hoping to achieve tomorrow.
2: Well, that's good to hear about. Kathleen Burns, again, Executive Director of the Connecticut Marine Trades Association based in Essex. Kathleen, thank you. Thank you so much. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we're looking at, Mod- or actually, Thursday, Modern Homesteading, and Friday, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy in studio all hour. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Thanks for listening.